What's the name of this? Silver Bullet. Silver Boy, huh? Silver Bullet. Here we go, take one. Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Our guest today is Harold Bronson, best known, I think, as the co-founder of Rhino Records that became the preeminent reissue label of all time in the United States of America, really sort of set the standard for how to do that and grew as that market grew. So we'll get into that. Uh, We'll get into what he did before that, which is run the Rhino Records store and work as a music journalist and go to a lot of concerts and stuff. And this book sort of uh, chronicles all of these different things and brings them all together. It's called Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007. Uh, So we'll talk to him in a minute, but uh, let me just tell you that next week I've got Rami Gabriel performing live on the program. Super interested. His records are so interesting uh, be interesting to hear what he does solo. And then, this is huge, December 24th next year, which is right around the corner, I guess, Joel Selvin, who is the author of a new book called Drums and Demons, The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon, will be our guest. Uh, Jim Gordon's drumming is so amazing, his career is so amazing, and it ended so tragically, so we'll uh, try to put all of that in perspective. The new book, I've just read it, and it's fantastic, and uh, really looking forward to that in February. Uh, so that's it. Hope you're doing well. And uh, here it is, me and my chat with Harold Bronson. All right, there are the Crossfires. They would, of course, turn into the Turtles, a band that would be kind of important in the Rhino record story. And Harold Bronson joins us. He's got a brand new book out. It's called Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007. Harold, welcome. I really enjoyed the book. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here. So this is literally a 400-plus page book. It's 40 years of diary entries, and there's almost a Zelig-like quality to it. You seem to be everywhere, and the book chronicles as you go to parties and the people that you meet in a journalistic capacity and the people that you work with at Rhino Records. And it's kind of mind-blowing, the sheer number of important and interesting artists that you cross pass with. It's also amazing to me because when the book starts, you're in high school and how many of the musicians that you discuss in your diary while you're still in high school, you wind up working with later in life. It's kind of, uh, it was really astonishing to me. I assume that incredibleness is not lost on you. Not lost on me, but you know, one of the, uh, the overriding importance with this book and the other books I've written, but also going into uh, the Rhino Records days was documenting and preserving rock history. So a lot of what's in this book, there's quite a bit that's, you know, never been revealed before, and there's other aspects which are obscure. Starting off, like, one of the first concerts I went to was The Seeds, and The Seeds are probably best known for pushing too hard. They had a number of hits in Los Angeles uh, that maybe didn't didn't go that high nationally, but the point I want to make is... Um, you know, there's never been a written review of the seeds or, you know, so what were they like in concert or what were the music machine like or the merry-go-round or strawberry alarm clock. So so part of it is some of that in documenting it. L- let me give you a great example. The Dave Clark Five played, um, I think it was the Melody Land Theater in Anaheim. And if you read the L.A. Times review, or the article about it, I should say. It's all about, you know, the crowd and what was going on. There's nothing talking about the music. So, you know, in the, you know, the mid-ish 1960s or so, 
a lot of the reporters weren't really, you know, up to speed as far as being able to assess the music. So part of it is, in certain cases, you know, very selectively, you know, what were my takes on some of these artists that I related to strongly when I saw them in concert. Yeah. Uh, One person that comes up a lot in the book, and really throughout the entire 40-year span of the book, is Arthur Lee. First as a fan, then you work with him. He's quite a character. Tell us about him a little bit. Love were a very big Los Angeles band, and Arthur Lee was the head of Love, and he actually turned his label president, Jack Holzman, at Electra onto the Doors. And then when the Doors in popularity eclipsed Love, he became very, you know, sour about it. But um, really brilliant, the first three Love albums, just really great albums. Um, the third one, Forever Changes, is definitely in my all-time top ten. But one of the problems with um, Arthur is that he didn't really want to travel much out of his, you know, Southern California, Los Angeles base. So, you know, he he did, Love did play in San Francisco, but, you know, he didn't go to New York. He just, uh, so, you know, part of it was insecurity, like what will they, how will they think of me in these other areas? And then a little bit later when he and the other members got heavily involved in drugs, they didn't want to be too far away from their connection. And I also have to say, um, on a you know a parallel level, uh, you know I was reissued and, and dealt a lot with Dick Dale, you know the king of the surf guitar, and Dick Dale didn't want to travel outside of Southern California because he didn't want to be too far away from his favorite surfing spots. So you know it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know they could have been much bigger nationally, but, you know, for various reasons, uh, you know, they were self-limiting in, uh, in uh, you know, in their career. Yeah. By the way, uh, in the book, you quote Arthur, he, or I think somewhere I read, he calls you the most honest man in the music business. Uh, so yeah. what, is it, what does it say about you that you were the kind of person that faithfully kept a diary? Where did that habit come from? Okay, well, first of all, let me just, you know, address your point. So for Myself and Richard, uh, you know, growing up and and being big music fans, and, you know, when we translated all of this passion into Rhino, so these records were important to us growing up. These artists and producers and songwriters who made these records were important to us. So when we were in a position to, you know, make deals with them or pay them, it was important for us to, you know, pay people properly and to you know, pay them accurately because we, you know, we know that the history of the music industry, uh, you know, people unfortunately, you know, didn't feel the same way uh, as we were. So I think, you know, uh, you know, we didn't get that much appreciation here or there, but like Tommy James really appreciated us because, you know, he was with Roulette Records and uh, let's just say that uh, Morris Levy had a reputation for not paying royalties or not paying them very often. Or holding you out so, a window if you asked for a raise, yeah. Yeah, well, there's stories about that. But anyway, um, so so anyway, that, you know, that was important. Um, as it relates to, um, this is in diary form, and the, one of the reasons I put it in diary form was 
if you have a theme like, you know, Rhino Records, the first book, The Rhino Records Story, the second book, My British Invasion, there were sort of parameters and themes that you kind of needed to stick with that. And, and, and that, you know, there was a lot of my interactions and encounters that I couldn't put into those other two. So when you have a diary, any entry doesn't necessarily need to relate to what you did the day before or the day after. So you could have a lot of different things. So it's a totally different book, and there's a lot more variety in it, but there were, you know, many stories that I couldn't put into the other two. So, um, you know, that's why I put it into a diary form. Well, because it's first person, there are some really interesting observations, like you say, that wouldn't necessarily be in a researched linear book. Like this, I I found this mind-blowing. Like 1967, you're buying mono LPs because they were $2.87 and stereo LPs were $4.79. That's like a piece of history that's kind of lost. And this book is sprinkled with things like that that would otherwise sort of be lost. Exactly, and that's why it was important for me to kind of put that in. So, for instance, you know, I didn't remember those exact, exactly what I paid for those, but I used to wait for sales at Sears and Roebuck. And so, you know, I could go back into the L.A. Times archive and go, okay, well, here's the ad that I would have seen because when, you know, I went, when I went to Sears, and I would, you know, I would buy, you know, oh, uh, Gary Lewis and the Playboy's Greatest Hits or, uh, you know, or, or whatever, the, you know, Herman's Hermit's Best of Volume 3, whatever it is that I remember buying at Sears because, um, you know, that was a great place. And I would, you know, wait for the sale. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, like I said, it was important for me to kind of uh, archive all this stuff because a lot of it, um, you know, throughout history, a lot of it is, you know, lost because at the time it wasn't determined to be important. Yeah. Uh, so the story follows you from high school to UCLA, where you think maybe you might be a lawyer, and then you read a review in the UCLA paper, The Daily Bruin, and you think, I could do better. So you start writing for The Bruin, soon enough you're selling pieces to other publications, eventually Rolling Stone and the LA Times and the New York Rocker. Uh, let's talk about breaking into music journalism at that time. It was sort of just beginning to be something that young people did. Originally, just culture writers were writing about music, uh, and then people sort of started to hire younger writers. So the way your path goes, were you really good? Was there luck involved? What was the competition like to do that at that time? Well, I mean, you know, you just walk into the Daily Bruin office, and, um, you know, this colorful character, John Mendelssohn, who is the um, music editor, the first question he asked me was, do you like The Who? And I thought, wow, what a strange question. I paused a second. I said, yeah. And then I learned that people who said no didn't write that year. That's the kind (laughs) of guy he was, a big, big Who fan. And, um, you know, in the pages of the Daily Bruin, because I've been reading Mendelssohn, and then, you know, and then, of course, a little bit later in Rolling Stone, but he was to my taste, head and shoulders above anybody else uh, writing uh, rock journalism uh, in the uh, early 70s. Of course, he's, he's notorious uh, for like giving you know Led Zeppelin's first album or first two albums a bad review. So I mean, you know, he does uh, he does have that notoriety. But you know, what people think about you know among the writers that they might remember from that period, like, you know, Lester Bangs. I was at Mendelssohn to my case was uh 
uh, you know, much, much better. And uh, so he was my first editor. And, you know, there was a little competition and, you know, it took me a while to kind of get up to speed. And I would, you know, but I mean, I was serious about writing. I would take certain articles that I thought were well written and I would uh, dissect them. How, what, how did they express themselves? What did they say? Um, in the UCLA Research Library, there were two books that you couldn't check out. So um, Lillian Roxon's um, Rock Encyclopedia and, um, um, of course, um, Rock from the Beginning, uh, which um, um, also had the uh, a Wop Bop, a Loop Bop, Long Bang by uh, um, Nick Cohn, who, again, is most known for the story that... Uh, Became Saturday Night Fever. That you know, that's mm. that was in I think New York Magazine. But anyway, but um, uh, Rock from the Beginning was just a great book. And the reason, by the way, Mendelssohn recommended that to me. But you couldn't check it out at UCLA. I read it. I read it at the research desk. You know, over a number of days. But it was the first book that, as it was written, um, where the writer was able to capture the crazy energy of, uh, you know, rock and roll from the 50s and 60s. So, um, you know, so again, learn, you know, I was really, it was important for me to kind of learn to be a good writer. And through the years, uh, or a couple years anyway, I was, you know, got up to speed and good enough where I was able to make money by writing, not a lot, but enough so that I didn't have to get like a summer job. I could make enough from my writing throughout the year. Uh, so they didn't need to do that. You write a lot about concerts that you attended during that time, and again, you saw some legendary bands in the late 60s, early 70s. Tell me a couple of shows in your whole life uh, that were among the best you ever went to. You know, it's a really uh, interesting question, because as we know, um, a lot of acts, you know, weren't always consistent. Like, for instance, I loved going to see Proko Harum. They were always great, and they were really consistent. And then, of course, we know, like, a group like The Doors, they could be great, but that a lot of the times they were they were terrible, uh, you know, because of, you know, Jim Morrison and his, you know, whatever his tendency was and his mood at the time. And then there were other, like, okay, The Kinks were always entertaining, but The Kinks were sloppy, you know, they were out of tune, you know, they weren't that musically accomplished, but they were a lot of fun. So I think I saw them maybe eight times, nine times, but probably the best time was Schoolboys in Disgrace uh, tour, because they dressed up in um, the schoolboy outfits, and they had the visual where they showed a little bit of a film. You know, but other times... Okay, we know about Electric Light Orchestra. So originally it was Jeff Lynn and Roy Wood, you know, evolving out of the move with, you know, Bev Bevan and, you know, uh, one or two other people. And then at a certain point, Roy Wood broke out and formed Wizard. And I happened to be in London. So this was September 1972. And I guess it was one of their first gigs. And I remember, uh, you know, I paid for a ticket. I saw them at the sundown on Mile End. And I just thought they were terrible. I couldn't quite understand it. And and then maybe a year later, they were at the Santa Monica Civic, and I thought they were great. And I couldn't kind of reconcile how how they were so bad and they became so good. So again, that's kind of 
you know, a, uh, a contrast in a sense. Oh, uh, another great show I have to mention. Um, okay, so when the New York Dolls played the Whiskey A Go-Go, um, they really weren't very good, and I wasn't the only person to think that way. And then when David Johansson's first solo album came out on Columbia Records, he played the Whiskey. And uh, I was comped that night, and I, he was so good that um, I went back the next night and paid for a ticket. So, uh, you know, that says a lot. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, some people are better than others, and some people have off nights. So those are off the top of my head. Uh, oh, um, I mentioned the Seeds earlier. Um, you know, one of my, the first rock concerts I saw, so maybe my... Um, my taste wasn't that evolved, but I thought they were really good because they sounded like the records. So, you know, certain groups had that ability, like the Turtles were great, you know, as far as being able to sound like the records and have the, you know, the harmonies. And then other groups that, you know, people liked a lot, like the Rolling Stones, they really never sounded like the records, or, or at least in 1969 and post-1969 Rolling Stones, you know, they didn't sound like the record. So, uh, you know, but there was obviously other aspects that were appealing about them. At one point, you interview Morris Gibb, who claims to play on the Beatles' Abbey Road record and some other crazy stuff. What was that about? Here's how that uh, came about. We got a call at the Daily Bruin office, Jim Bickhart, was the music editor after Mendelssohn, and he said, oh, yeah, Morris Gibb is coming into town. And he asked me, would you like to interview him? I said, yes. So this was the first interview I'd ever done. Prior to that, I was just uh, reviewing records. And it was in November 1969, and I I didn't have a cassette machine, but I, I had a Telectro reel-to-reel tape recorder, which I refer to uh, in, in uh, the book, and I lugged it up from, you know, where I parked. And, you know, it was, it was heavy. And uh, so I re- recorded him. But um, I thought he was really charming. I really liked him a lot. And I was part of it was, you know, getting an understanding um, with the problems where the Bee Gees were a five-man group, and now they were down to two men. So kind of like what happened. And I also asked him about Odessa, which I thought was a great record. But uh, neither um, didn't make uh, neither Rolling Stone, you know, didn't uh, review it. It wasn't really given much importance. So anyway, it was you know loving the interviewing, going along, and then he goes, oh, you know, I'm really pleased that um, you know Abbey Road is such a big hit. Uh, and then he start tells me that he played bass on a couple songs, and he goes, oh yeah, I'm really pleased that something is a big hit because I played lead guitar on it. And I'm thinking to myself. You know, why would Paul McCartney, who's a you know great bass player, why would he allow somebody else to play on you know bass on a Beatles record? And then why would George Harrison, who wrote the song, um, you know, and sang it, why would he have somebody? You know, so part of me was like a bit conflicted, which is to say, my first interview, I didn't feel like challenging him on it. I wasn't. I wasn't going to say, you know. I, I was, anyway, so um, I uh, in my article I didn't put that in there. Um, but anyway, in uh, you know in in the uh, was he just messing with you? Well, you know I have more about this in uh, in, you know, in the book. Time has come today, but it, to me it was either was he really you know 
believed it, or was he just trying to, you know, be provocative and get, you know, uh, his name in the press? But then, you know, many years later, in Lulu's autobiography, which I referred to and mentioned in my book, you know, she says, I wonder, you know, she even she said, like, you know, how much he, he lied, and she, you know, kind of couldn't understand it. So, anyway, that was... Uh, you know, I really enjoyed him. I I ran into him, you know, at various points, you know, two or three times, a few times later. But again, at that point, it was just, uh, it was a little bit uh, disconcerting. Yeah, it's hysterical also. What was the reach of the Daily Bruin? I'm, I'm curious. Was it beyond the campus? Well, you know, not really, but you have to think. I don't have the exact number, but I think with students and also with, you know, the, you know, the people working there, Probably, um, you know, potentially 30,000. Oh, wow. You know, but the difference, and, you know, maybe more so then than now, but when you think about, you know, people primarily from, you know, 18 to 22 years old, and, you know, and, and, and a little bit beyond that, but you have to think prime music buyers, of course, you know, not everybody, but you have to think, uh, you know, I would think, you know, uh, you know much more than 10% of, the, of those people. Sure, that's the demographic you're you're shooting for. One uh, thing that I wanted to ask you more about: May 1973, you attend the first annual National Association of Rock Writers convention, which was this thing, I believe, that the folks at Ardent Records cooked up. They flew all these journalists to Memphis to watch Big Star and a bunch of their bands play, sort of under the guise of this writers' association. And it's kind of a legendary thing because all these writers got together and drank tons of free booze and Big Star did not become big because of it. Uh, what was it like being there? A free trip was uh, we were so rare these days that, you know, part of it was uh, was that appeal, let alone going somewhere that um, I hadn't been before. So, yeah, so I really uh, I document that in the book. Um, you know, the first night there, I hung mostly with um, Lester Bangs. I remember, you know, I was drinking, you know, you're always drinking with Lester, and I remember the shrimp cocktail. And then the next morning, I woke up, and I was feeling, you know, a little bit under the weather, but I couldn't under, I didn't know whether it was because I had too much to drink, or whether I was sleeping with the air conditioning on, which I'd never done before, um, you know, or, you know, whether it was something else. But, um, from my point of view, the the idea of having a um, you know rock writers union to get more pay, uh, you know I didn't think that was going to go anywhere, so I didn't attend any of those meetings. Um, but then the other thing is, um, Big Star. So Big Star originally were a quartet, and then they were down to three members. And at the showcase for them, um, I was hanging with um, David Renson, and neither of us thought they were any good. I think most people years later thought that they were good. So if you, you know, read about certain comments years later, you know, they would talk about the group positively. But at least for the two of us, you know, we didn't think that they, uh, you know, that they measured up. So I was trying to, so in documenting all this stuff, I was staying with like, what were my impressions at the time? And in some cases where they, you know, where they might have been short-sighted, I wasn't trying to, you know, re- revise that. And so, you know, years later that, oh, I thought, you know, Patti Smith was great when I heard, you know, her her Piss Factory single. You know, I was giving my impression 
of what I thought at the time because I wanted to be, you know, honest with all of this stuff. Yeah, you're startlingly honest uh, throughout the book, and I give you, I mean, that's part of what makes the book uh, so interesting. One of the things that I thought was interesting was when you talk about Rolling Stone sort of going mainstream and, you know, sort of selling out in a way. Is that an important turning point? Um, yes. Um, so again, um, Rolling Stone, you know, great magazine in the early days, uh, not only because of the music coverage, even though they did cover other things, uh, politics and culture, but the writing was just at such a high level. And so not only did I enjoy reading it, but also when I could get articles in there, um, I enjoyed being part of that as well. And, um, but at a certain, but by the way, you know, at the time when you're reading it or you're writing from, you don't really know the economics. You don't know the behind the scene. You don't know the money stuff. At a certain point, um, the publisher, Jan Winner, determined that he needed to expand his readership. And he started going for, um, he wanted to be in uh, um, supermarkets in the checkout, you know, the, the stand, uh, right, you know, by the checkout stand to get more sales. So he needed to expand from rock and roll. And, you know, there were two aspects that I found grating about that. One is, you know, being more, you know, more of a purist. Like, you know, what are these, you know, showbiz types doing on the cover? You know, what's that, what's that all about? And secondly, I always thought that um, Rolling Stone should be in the vanguard of trends uh, for music. That, um, you know, that they should be the first one to alert the public you know, here's what's going on so that people could take notice of it or, you know, pay attention to some of the records. So um, so there were like a couple, two or three articles that I um, pitched that I got turned down on. So one of them, I remember, is glam rock. I was really into glam rock, which, of course, uh, you know, T-Rex and the Swede and, you know, David Bowie and, you know, another a number of other artists. I was a big fan of that, and I pitched it. And uh, it, by the way, glam rock really never happened in the U.S. But in the early part, I thought, okay, Rolling Stone should do something. And, you know, so I got turned down. But then I was, you know, working at the Rhino store and focused on that. Yeah. Uh, let me remind folks that Harold Bronson is our guest. His brand new book is called Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007. Around 1979, you're working at the Rhino label full-time. When you guys started the label, did you have any imagination of how gigantic an operation Rhino would become? Was that the plan, or did that just happen? When I uh, was at UCLA and I had my band, we played around a little bit, Mogan David and his winos, I pressed a couple records on my own label. And part of it was, you know, serious, and part of it was like a uh, a parody. So, um, so what I'm saying is that, you know, I, I had this, this was, you know, a few years before the DIY, you could, you know, press up your own record. So I had the experience of, you know, pressing up your own record and paying a pressing plant and, you know, an album cover place to, to do this. So I went to Richard and I said, why don't we start a label in the back room of the store? I think it could be fun. So that's where it started. But it, um, you know, there really wasn't much of an ambition. Originally, it was 
recording novelty records because you could do those cheaply. And then we were championing L.A. bands, but to our real disappointment, local radio stations, you know, you know, were not supportive. So most of these didn't sell well enough to even break even. But then we hit upon um, the reissues were working and making money for us. So, you know, reissuing gradually a lot of this great rock and roll that we grew up with that was not available. So um, it was kind of a learning process and be, trying to be smarter what we were doing and, you know, doing better the next year than we did the previous year. And it was growing, but it, there wasn't any real ambition to say, oh, yeah, we could, you know, make a lot of money by doing this and have a big company. I think you'd have to be, you know, uh, you know, a crazy in order to think that. there was There would be no reason why you would believe that. But again, we were just so passionate about what we do, we were doing that, um, you know, it, it grew into this, uh, you know, this business. It's very interesting, you know, the, the book tells this progression of you from student to journalist to Rhino store worker to Rhino label co-founder, and there's so many records that you are into that aren't in print, so it makes sense that you would jump into the void there and help put those records out again. But it made me think, especially in the early days, because I think the reissue game changed partly because of the what Rhino established. But in the early days of the label, why didn't labels just reissue this music themselves? Was it just lack of imagination? So I, uh, I went into this, you know, much more in detail in the, the Rhino record story. But you have to think, you know, late 70s, you know, even into the early 80s, the late 70s, you had, you know, big selling albums, um, you know, Fleetwood Mac, Michael Jackson. So the major labels were thinking, you know, multiple millions of records. That's what they were thinking about. In a lot of cases, they couldn't be bothered putting out these records. So, for instance, there was no best of the Spencer Davis group. So, um, you know, that we licensed from, uh, you know, that was uh, United Artists Records, uh, you know, then. Um, uh, there was no Best of the Turtles. We licensed that from them because, you know, they got the rights back. Um, so that, you know, kind of start uh, uh, um, Best of uh, Alan Sherman, again, not thought of, you know, rock and roll, but Alan Sherman, you know, really important to us and our roots and the novelty records and obviously uh, the biggest influence for Weird Al Yankovic, uh, you know, a number of years later. So um, none of this was available. Um, and in some cases where some of this was available, um, it would be just kind of schlocked out. It would be uh, a label would be thinking, um, how do we wring extra profits from some of these masters but let's spend the least amount of money that we could. And we were the opposite. We were like, let's make these sound really good. And in some cases, we were able to make them sound better than when they originally came out. Let's track down rare photos for the cover. Let's have an informative liner notes. So, you know, that's where we were coming from. And fortunately, there were a lot of people who felt like us and appreciated what we did and, you know, and bought our records so that we were able to, you know, have a, uh, a thriving business. 
Yeah, it is kind of amazing that, I mean, Rhino gets credit for packaging and liner notes and remastering, and it's amazing that that, that, that simple uh, respect wasn't, that treatment wasn't being done to those records. I mean, in retrospect, that's that, it's amazing that that's where record labels were putting their priorities at that time. I just had Bruce Belland of the Four Preps on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he led me down the rabbit hole of uh, Ed Cobb and Dick Dodd and... Uh, all the work he did. And one of the stories you tell in the book is how Dick Dodd, the lead singer of the Standells, eventually was like working in a restaurant or something and asked you for a job in the Rhino mailroom. Again, it's just the amazing people that you touch base with in this book and the sort of rise and fall of groups like the Standells. I, I, I do definitely get the feeling that part of your mission here was not to make money, but to help people and just to get this deserving music heard. Um, yes. Well, first of all, the most important thing is to get the music out there, because if people hear the music, it could, you know, presumably have a positive impact on their lives. So the music is always the most important thing. And in some cases, it was to try to show the artists respect and to, you know, to kind of give them some recognition, because a lot of them were shortchanged in their, uh, you know, in their prime. So um, let me give you an example. Arthur Lee and Love, um, Forever Changes, uh, one of my all-time favorite albums. I was thinking, you know, it, it sold okay when it came out, but it was not really a hit record. But through the years, it got more and more recognition. It would be in uh, whenever anybody like Rolling Stone or, or out of England, when people would do like the best rock albums of all time, it would always be there. And at one point I was thinking, um, well, over, you know, 30 plus years, the aggregate sales of this had to have achieved gold status, which would have been 500,000. So I, um, I wanted to get a gold record for Arthur. And I contacted the person in Electra, um, and I tried to find out, well, you know, how close are we or what are the sales? And the guy was just totally uncooperative and it wouldn't tell me. And I was just really crushed because, uh, you know, I just thought that, uh, you know, he would have really liked that and it would have done a lot for him. So, um, you know, it would be, you know, tr you know, try to do things like that. It wasn't just, uh, you know, always doing um, a great package, which, you know, we didn't get as much feedback or compliments as, you know, I would have liked. But for instance, Roy Orbison and his wife wrote us a nice letter because of the double album anthology we did on him. So, you know, whenever you'd hear from artists, you know, it was always really nice. Yeah. Uh, that You mentioned that Roy Orbison that CD is is one of the best sounding CDs in my collection. Like I will never get rid of that CD ever. It just sounds perfect. Uh, were artists generally, besides Roy, were they thankful? Because there is this weird thing you point out in the book of older acts not exactly having realistic expectations. Like they think possibly their next hit is 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 coming in the future when really their their career is very over. Not everybody, you know, not every artist that we. Uh, would reissue was necessarily, you know, a music fan or a rhino fan. And a lot of times there was a residual aspect that kind of prevented them from 
really appreciating what we did. So let me give you a, a great example of that. Originally on the Monkeys, I was a big Monkeys fan. Um, I wrote the, for many years, the definitive Monkeys article, which was in Coast Magazine in 1971. It was like a real lengthy piece. And um, interviewed them earlier on. So I had a little bit of a relationship there. And Rhino, we originally uh, licensed their catalog. So again, this was something that, you know, I initiated and put together. And then other people, you know, like Billinglot came involved and Gary Stewart. And then years later, Andrew Sandoval. And then at a certain point, we were in a position to buy the catalog and buy the rights. So the point I want to make is that the producers of uh, and owners of the original monkeys, um, Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson, they were the authority figures. So there was, you know, some resentment and antagonism from the various members of the monkeys towards them, you know, whether they thought they should have made more money or whether this, whether that. So after we bought the catalog, I kind of ended up in that position as the authority figure. So what I'm saying is I had a good relationship with all of the monkeys. But at times there were, you know, difficulties that I had to navigate because I was in that position. So, by the way, even though they they knew we were doing great work, even though um, I increased their royalties probably by a factor of five from what they had been making prior to, you know, Rhino owning it. You know, there was still things like, um, I remember I, I, Davy Jones was in um, the southeast, and he was driving, and he was calling me from the car, and he was, you know, ranting and ranting, we should get a higher royalty, this and that, and just like, he was, he, by the way, he sounded drunk. And he was like, you know, a real rant. And then, like, the last thing he said was, oh, have a nice day. And then he hung up, and I just, like, was so, you know, charmed by that. You know, it was, like, so funny that he was ragging on me and (laughs) and wished me have a nice day. So, anyway, that's what I'm saying is a lot of times it wasn't, you know, it's kind of a residual aspect, you know, maybe resentment, the fact that they didn't get paid royalties or they didn't get paid what they should have. And in many cases, or most cases, Rhino wasn't able to pay them directly. We had to pay whoever we licensed the material from. So, you know, there was, you know, that came into play. Is there an example of a, of a reissue that Rhino did that performed much better than you expected? Yes. You know, there were a number of them. Um, uh, I'll give you like three. I was a big fan of the Ruddles, as a number of us were. And, you know, Warner Brothers had put out um, a 14 song, you know, vinyl album cassette and then that you know at a certain point went out of print and um bill inglot when he was going through the the vaults there were um six tracks that were part of the tv special that weren't included on the album so he came to me with that and i said okay yeah let's reissue the album and let's on the you know on the uh, we didn't reissue the vinyl but on cd and we included the six extra tracks so um, I thought that was really that was really great and a great example of what Rhino did because we were giving people something you know that they hadn't been able to get before, and um, you know so artistically it worked really well, but also it sold much better 
I can't remember exactly what it sold, maybe 35000 at least, maybe more. So that's a good example of that. So here's a, a good example. There were a couple radio stations that uh, in the early 80s were doing um, what they called Louie Louie-a-thons, where they would play back-to-back records, different versions of Louie Louie, because there were so many of them. And I think these would, like, there were so many, they went maybe over, like, two or three days' worth. And um, so Richard came to me, and we had a particularly good year, and he said, you know, the greatest hits album or best of album is, you know, all the songs, you know, that were different songs that were, you know, that were hits or close to it. But nobody had done a best of album with 10 versions of the same song. So Richard came up with the idea, and he said, you know, why don't we do the best of Louie Louie, but it would be 10 different versions. And um, so we thought, okay, we're having a good year. Yeah, let's put it out. Even if we lose some money, it's a, it's a fun thing to do. It's like a joke thing, it's, you know, a creative, imaginative thing. So we thought that, um, you know, okay, maybe we'll sell like 3,000 copies. And we sold, much to our astonishment, over 100,000. <laughs> you know, so that was really pleasing. And then another example is, you know, I was a big fan of the Bonzo Dog Band. There was no best of in America. So this was CD. And I thought, look, it deserves to be out even if we lose money on it. And it sold much better than I thought. Um, and when we made money on it, I think it did uh, 11000 So what I'm saying is that, you know, the music was important to us. And even in some cases where we thought, oh, we might lose money on this, let's put it out anyway. The idea was we were, you know, we really had that aspect, which was, I think, unique. It wasn't part of like a corporate mentality. And so there, and in many cases, a lot of these records that we thought we were going to lose money on, you know, we made money on. So that was, you know, re- you know really pleasing. Are there Holy Grail projects that you tried to get released but couldn't? And similarly, are there catalogs that are unicorn catalogs that exist, but the, the people who control them will just not let them be released? Yeah, okay, two examples. When uh, Apple Records got the rights back to their catalog, I wrote uh, Neil Aspinall, who was, you know, the head of Apple at the time. He was the, you know, Beatles road manager, and ultimately they put him as head of Apple. I wrote to him a letter, and for the U.S. rights to the Apple catalog, excluding the Beatles, I offered half a million dollars, didn't even get a response. <laughs> so that was something I wanted to do, and one of the records was, um, obviously, I was a big Badfinger fan, and um, I figured, okay, well, Apple will probably someday put out a Best of Badfinger so I put out um, a Best of Bad Finger Volume 2, which I think probably came out before Volume 1. And uh, it was like the best of the Warner Brothers. They did three albums from Warners. One of the albums wasn't released. So I included four tracks from that. So I go into that in um, the book and the story and how that came about. That was not easy to do. Um, but the main catalog, the main thing I wanted to do was... Uh, the Dave Clark Five catalog, and um, Dave Clark thought that by keeping his catalog unavailable and off the market, that when he decided to, you know, make it available, that it would be worth that much more. 
And the opposite happened because people forgot about the Dave Clark Five. It wasn't service to all these radio. There were few, you know, when when they uh, wore out a copy in the pre-digital area era. So I really tried. I mean, I uh, wrote to him yearly for maybe uh, I don't know six or seven years to where like he it bugged him. Don't write me anymore. <laughs> Um, anyway, he ultimately made a deal with Hollywood Records, which was a Disney label, Hollywood Records, and um, they put out a best of records, but because they didn't quite know what they were doing, we actually, you know, did a lot of the work, you know, without getting, you know, credit where we couldn't put, you know, Billing Lot couldn't put his name on it because if he was at Rhino. Anyway, um, it sold a lot less than it should have sold, so no future products were done no box set. So they're the only major artist from, uh, you know, the 60s who never had a box set. What about the Universal Fire and all those tapes burnt? I always felt like maybe the public never got the real story of uh, how bad it was and what are the ramifications moving forward? Well, I don't really have knowledge or information on that, but in uh, the book, I do have the story about the fire in the Atlantic warehouse. And where we uh, took an interest in that um, was after we made our deal with the Warner Music Group and they opened up more of our catalog. But we would get these computer printouts and we would see tapes that we couldn't access because they didn't exist anymore. So like the Rascals Live at the Phone Booth, for instance, or the multi-tracks for um, the Iron Butterfly Inagata DeVita album, or... John Coltrane's outtakes or um, Captain Beefheart outtakes. And we learned that um, about the fire that I think 1970, 71, um, in New Jersey, which was at this uh, previously like a, a wooden warehouse, a furniture structure that, uh, you know, the police uh, thought that the fire was like suspicious. So, um, you know, that's in the, uh, the new book. One more time, Harold Bronson is our guest, and the book is called Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007. You can get it at Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. Uh, You've done a lot of things since you left Rhino 2001. What are you up to these days besides writing books? Well, what I really wanted to do was um, rock and roll films, feature films. So... um so we had a small, uh, you know, little production wing. So we did um, two features. We did uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas from the uh, Hunter S. Thompson book. And then we did Why Do Fools Fall in Love, uh, Frankie Lyman and the Teenager Story. That was um, my idea because we uh, acquired the catalog as part of the roulette deal. So the idea was, you know, when you hear a lot of this great rock music coming from the speakers when you're sitting in a theater. I mean, it has a really big impact, and a hit movie can, of course, sell records. Well, neither of those two movies were hits, and then they did a few other things. The um, the Monkeys uh, 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 story, the Monkeys movie for uh, VH1, it was called Daydream Believers, and I did um, a record, uh, record a, m- a movie with... Uh, Howard Kalen from the Turtles, my dinner with Jimmy when he had dinner with Jimmy Hendrix at the uh, speakeasy when the uh, um, Turtles went over. So I want, really wanted to do that. I wanted to do a Ramones movie. Nobody was interested. I worked with Doug Figer on 
uh, the movie w- would have been called My Sharona, a true rock and roll romance. I worked with Doug Figer on developing that um, before he died. But I never pitched it to anybody because Hollywood really doesn't understand, um, you know, rock movies. And um, there, um, you know, there was a run where just, you know, everyone lost money. So obviously my interest in this was... Um, uh, before you know, Rocket Man and and uh, you know the the Queen story, which were of course successes. So at a um, at a certain point, uh, you know, I thought um, I need to preserve the history of the Rhino label because if I don't preserve it, it's going to be lost. So that was the Rhino record story, and I was only thinking one book. I wasn't thinking beyond that. But then, as that was you know, I was waiting for the production cycle. Then I, there were three key chapters that I left out because of length. So the Dave Clark Five story, uh, the Kinks dealing with Ray Davis and, and reissuing the RCA stuff, which was, you know, kind of an ordeal. And uh, and then, you know, being a fan of the British invasion and having interviewed a lot of these people um, in the 1970s when very few people were talking to them and getting their story, I was thinking, well, there's books on the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who, but there's, you know, no book on Herman's Hermits and the Spencer Davis Group and the Trogs and Manfred Mann. So why don't I, you know, do chapters on them? So that was my British invasion. And again, I was only thinking that one book. And then, you know, in the the post-production, the production cycle, then I was thinking, well, you know, I'd had interactions with all these other people, a lot of American rock groups that I couldn't put in those other two. So that kind of evolved into um, um, time has come today. Yeah. Uh, Once again, your honesty is... um Unique, and I think part of what makes this book so good, you've seen a lot, you have, you're incredibly clear-headed, I assume that you didn't take LSD every day for like like some people did. So there's like a, a unique clearness to your, your recollections. And uh, I really, really enjoyed the book. Thank you for visiting with us this morning. It's all been fascinating. Folks can uh, pick up the book, Time Has Come Today, Rock and Roll Diaries, 1967 to 2007, Amazon. Or wherever they get their books. What should we hear now from? How about the? I think something from the monkeys is uh, apropos. What's your favorite? Well, you know, um, well, Pleasant Valley Sunday because it's up tempo and uh, that'll be a great one. And you know that that was um, when Goffin and King were living in uh, Orange in New Jersey. That's you know the suburb. Uh, that's they they uh, they wrote that there. So it was about what was going on in their community. Yeah, I mean, that's just uh, a few blocks from my house and eh, probably 14 miles from from WFMU. Uh, Harold Bronson, thank you. Let's hear the monkeys. The local rock group down the street is trying hard to learn their song. Serenade the weekend squire just came out
Mrs. Gray, she's proud today because the roses are in bloom. Mr. Green, he's so serene, he's got a TV in every room. Another pleasant valley Sunday, here instead of symbol. Make it hard for me to see My thoughts all seem to stray Two places far away I need a change of scenery Westwood Boulevard on Westwood Boulevard. 